Welcome to the second season of Influence Me, a podcast series where I discuss matters of leadership with a wide range of guests. I'm Assistant Commissioner Andrew Short. For me, this podcast series is all about supporting leaders, both experienced and emerging, through the many challenges that will come on their leadership journey. It is my view that leadership is all about influence, and I look forward to interviewing more guests for the purpose of increasing knowledge and understanding of leadership. As the title of this podcast suggests, I want to be influenced. Today, it's a pleasure to have Robert Weber with me. Robert, who is a long-standing colleague that I've had a lot to do with over many years, and I'm proud enough to say he's probably been one of my mentors through my earlier part of my life. Now, a little bit of background on Robert. As it is said, from little things, big things grow. Robert's initial experience with the fire services was as an untrained and ineffectual volunteer firefighter with the CFA back in the early 1980s. In 1983, he fled the Ash Wednesday fires with his wife and month-old daughter. And Robert, we could talk about that separately. I'm sure that was a big event for you and the family. And shortly thereafter, while he worked in TAFE and before the era of certificates, he conducted many train the trainer work programs for the CFA trainers at Fiscal. Robert went on to work with the Fiscal trainers to develop training packages to improve the skills of the CFA volunteers. In the mid-90s, he escaped Ballarat's miserable winters and moved to Mullaney in Queensland. Around that time, a major review of Queensland's fire services led to a major restructure. 81 fire boards in local government were replaced by a signal fire service, and this was the genesis of the current QFES, and we did have along the way QFS, QFRA, but it's the the same organisation that's been developing. Robert worked within the new organisation with its exceptional people for many years to develop the capability of the new teams. He went on to do similar work with QAS and other agencies within the emergency services. Robert also has worked on major and minor organisational development projects in other sectors and across the globe. He is currently retired, but always happy to support people doing good work with good people. And I think that last statement there, Robert, is probably why I asked you to come and join me. So welcome. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yes, it's uh, we, we ran into each other, just a bit of background for those listening. We ran, ran into each other in a fish and chip shop a few weeks ago, and that culminated in uh, me reaching out to Robert. We've had a chat since then, and I realised that you know, there are great advantages for us having this discussion given Robert's journey and given you know, my partial observation of that journey. It's been incredible. Now today, and we talked about what we're going to cover today, and it was interesting that you landed on how the level of energy within an organisation has many, many factors and how, in your words, work is simply energy applied to a task. So talk to me about that. What does that mean for you? Let's go back a little bit and let's look at what happened when they did the major restructure from all those individual fire boards to a one big organisation. And people can relate to restructures. I'm sure we've all gone through all those sort of things. And at the end of the day, many people end up tired, fatigued, they've become survivors. Work becomes just a job. They've got no more energy than to turn up and clock on and clock off and to do what's required of them. When I go back to my early work days, 
Work used to be exciting. People, I used to love going to work. I used to enjoy the comradeship. I used to enjoy the energy in the building. And I was often surprised that people would work longer and harder than they were asked to do. Now, when we did that major restructure, well, I didn't do the restructure, but, but, I came in but afterwards. But you were, you were central to it. Yeah, uh, after all of that. People came into the room, all the jobs were declared vacant. People didn't have permanent positions, but they all came together and decided they wanted to build this new organisation. And they did it with a lot of energy, a lot of commitment, and a lot of passion. And that's what I want to see us bring back into our workplaces energy, passion and commitment. Just just reflecting back on that period, and I was privy to be part of it, uh, even though it was at an earlier point in my time in, in seniority, I look back and I wonder how were they, that group, able to get past the fear that's normally associated with these big changes? Because, and there was fear. Everyone who lives in a world where you may not have a job or your future's going to be different or just any old change. Fear is a very human nature uh, response to that. What's your take on the amount of fear that you observed and how people cope with it or, or manage that? It's interesting. The fear wasn't a driver at that time. Uh, I've worked on other restructures, mm-hmm. which we may mention, like with, in banks and that, and where people have been feared of losing their jobs altogether. With the organisation back at that stage, people weren't sure what role they would have. But what was interesting about it was they were committed to the future. Everyone could see the benefit of having one organisation. They could see the opportunities for them within that new organisation. And there was a hope out there that we were building something and people could see that we were building something, that we're all going in a positive direction. Unlike some restructures, particularly in the private sector, which are about driven by cost control, or let's, uh, let's uh, put in new technology and take people out of the system. We weren't about taking people out of the system. We were about giving people opportunities. As you uh, mentioned, a choice was taken to spill jobs. Yes. And I think it was, it was a smart strategy in that it gave people who, you know, leaving was on their mind anyway mm. it allowed them to confront the, the decision that they had which was you know put your hand up and jump back in or if you want we will let you depart graciously and i do look back and think you know and it's easy for me to say this because i wasn't one of those affected but you know many of the people that their transition out of the organization to their next step in their life was was pretty good it, we actually helped with the timing i think And that's a good thing to do, and I've seen that happen elsewhere. Not everybody wants to be part of the new organisation. And it's a matter of treating them with dignity and helping them find their new opportunities. Like I I worked in a private sector once where it was identified that a lot of people weren't happy with the restructure. They were given a job at a desk and they were told, work away there and look for another opportunity. They were still being paid to do virtually nothing, but they were treated with dignity. They were, they were allowed to leave with uh, their pride. And people who had that opportunity back in the, the, the days of when we were doing this new rebuilding to say whether they wanted to be there, whether they didn't want to be there. And of course, the, the chief at the time uh, didn't, wasn't going to be part of the new organisation, yeah. but he was very supportive of setting up 
the new future. He supported us going in together and he supported all the processes, even though he knew he wouldn't be part of it. Which, which says a lot about that commissioner, that he was able to put himself aside and think about legacy. And I think I admire leaders who can, they can get their decision making out in front of their, beyond their tenure. It is such a noble leadership trait. Absolutely. And because what everything we did back then and what he did was looked at the common good. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Now, the next part of this is managing change in this context. And I'll now ask you to share your experience a little bit broader, what you've seen as having been good practice and maybe times where maybe people weren't considered or they were considered as the last thing. I use the expression, you know, we've got to choose whether we're going to keep, treat people as widgets mm. or we're going to treat them as people. And I know that organisations get that mixed up sometimes. So what's your views on the, the good, the bad and the ugly? Yeah, let me go back to my first experience of a restructure. Yeah. I was working in one of Australia's major banks as a national training manager. All the jobs were declared vacant. Organisation decided they wanted new people, a new direction, which, by the way, they didn't achieve. But they declared all the jobs vacant and asked people who had been very successful to apply for the job again. And I saw old bankers taking heart pills because they were so stressed. I saw people being called into a room and then they were told to go to a certain door. And people went to one door, lost their job, and people went to another door, kept their job. It was cruel. It was merciless. There was an application process set up where people had to do desk exercises to prove whether worthy of the job, irrespective of how successful they had been in the past. That would have been quite demeaning. It was demeaning yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and relationships were broken. Relationships were broken inside the organisation. Relationships were broken with the customers and clients. What happened up here uh, and what I've always believed in is this focus on the common good. What we did, we got over 80 people into a room together. They were all facets of the fire service at the time. There were the unions, there were people in the community, there were volunteers. And we asked a few key questions. We used one of the major uh, technologies I like, future search conferencing. We asked people, what is it about the past we want to keep? Because there's a lot to be proud of in the past. The yes. past is always the foundation for the future. People think restructures are new beginnings. They're not. They're changes, but they're not new. They're not wiping the slate clean. Yeah. We said, what is about the past we want to keep? Let's not lose that. And things like comradeship, teamwork, commitment to the community, saving lives, obvious. What is about the past we want to reject and get rid of? And people could agree on that. And I've still got a strong memory of how that was shown, where it was a, and you may recall this, Rob, we developed a you know, what we value list. Yep. And then there was a what we don't value. And actually called out the um, some of the traits and behaviours that were not good, and we actually named it. In the context, there's an expression, and certainly it's an old expression now because the term is firemanship, whereas now... In our current world, it would be firefightership. But regardless, it's attention to your duty. And certainly on that list, I recall uh, the term, we reject bad firemanship, which is bad attitude on the fire ground, relying on others to do work that you could do. And there were other things that were on that list. It was, it was interesting watching how, as time went by, 
it lived on for a period, but then there, you know, there were some organizational changes. And all of a sudden, we, we ended into a period where, oh, we can only say positive stuff. Mm. We, we, we can't talk about the bad stuff. And all of a sudden, that right-hand column, which was about the stuff that we don't like, uh, you know, got quietly taken away. And I, th- I, th- I thought at the time it was a negative, uh, negative step because I think humans actually enjoy being told exactly where the boundaries are in terms of their behaviour. Yeah, and we mustn't lose sight of it. As you say, we shouldn't take those things away. <clears throat> the good thing we did for those three days we were together, I think, it was three days, we had them up on the wall and people could revisit them. And that gave a sense of identity to the group. This is what we were trying to build here. The next thing we did, which is about this common ground, was we did a massive group mind map. Uh, it, we asked people to call out all the things they thought we should be doing. And whether you, uh, you were from the union or whether you were existing in a firefighter or a volunteer, that all went up on this massive wall. And then we asked people to vote. We gave everyone five votes to put up on that wall. And what ended up were a group of priorities for the whole room. So anyone came in with an individual agenda, they saw how that fitted with the common agenda. So when we left that room, we all knew what we shared, what we wanted to build, and what the agenda was that we needed to work towards. We were talking earlier about people who, who seek, and I'll use the word you know, narcissistic or narcissistic behavior, who seek to drive a very personal agenda. Mm. And my sense of reflecting back on that, because I was part of that, was that anyone who come in with their own narrow agenda quickly got moderated through that process that you described. And it was, it was probably healthy. It was because people understood, we can't sometimes see beyond our own perspective. We're hardwired, we, we wake up knowing what we want to achieve and what we want to do every day. It's hard sometimes to give that up for what the group wants to do. And sometimes, particularly in some of my work outside the fire service, People do not have a sense of common purpose. There is a lot of individualistic behavior, whereas for the fire service has always been very, very strong on teamwork. Yeah. And we could build upon that ethos. It's harder in other places. And you're right, because our, um, our people get to see the loop close, as in the mm. effect, the, the outcomes of their efforts. You know, it's, a very, it's a very quick loop that closes. Now, just now reflecting on what we've been speaking about, now how, how do we generate that energy when those moments come where the organisation is in flux or you know, there's spectre of change, you know, there's unknowns? Uh, what's your view on how, when we don't know what could or couldn't happen, uh, particularly when you're being affected by outside forces, how, what do, how do you manage your organizational population in that context? Yeah, this is a worry to me because yeah. I've worked for a lot of people, I work, I've seen a lot of managers, I've seen a lot of leaders, and they lose a sense of hope. Yeah. And even this last couple of weeks, what we've gone through in this state and seeing a, a family and friends in other states, it, you think this is a dreadful time. And the long-term perspective isn't very encouraging sometimes either. But I believe the job of a boss, the job of a leader, a job of a manager is to find the sense of hope. What is it we can see that's going to be better by the end of this year? Even though things are turbulent, what can we do to make this a more fulfilling workplace? 
there are things we can't control, but let's see what we can control here. And we can build a more fulfilling, a happier workplace. The other thing that a boss should do is bring energy into the room. You know the old saying, you yeah, can't light a yeah. fire for a wet match. Yep. Gee whiz, I work with some people that just, they just, just I despair. Yep. They walk in the room and they bring micromanaging. That takes energy out of the room. Yep. Focusing on the negative takes energy out of the room. How often have we seen bosses not say thank you? Yeah. I had I worked with one man that said, my people know when they're doing a good job because I don't come out of my office. Yeah, and, and of course, the, you know, the converse to that is, uh, or the other side of that is the people who say, I must be doing a good job because I haven't heard anything. Yeah, yeah. We, we've got to do, so, uh, so we, a sense of hope is important. Yep. The other thing a boss should do is coach and mentor and encourage. Yeah. Well, and I don't see enough of that in any organisation. It was actually Ian McKenzie, who I'm going to acknowledge here, who in, in the early part of my career, he at that point was uh, teaching or advocating, saying that you know a, a key role of a leader is to mentor and facilitate. And, and that's such a, a big shift away from directly telling people what to do, yep. micromanaging. Now, yeah, there's a bit of a leap of faith in that for you to take that role on. And this is something I, I continue to try to do. I don't always do it well. You know that by giving people some space to be their own person, be their own professional. I, I know there are times where if I gave them more narrow instructions and detail, they probably are more likely to complete the task. But then I know that the next job they get given or the next thing they're supposed to look after, they're going to be coming back to me for detailed direction on how to do it. So I tend to think that you've got, you've got to let people learn and maybe sometimes learn the hard way and make their own mistakes. Yeah, let's come back to that one too because uh, and, and, and a good way of looking at that is the model of situational leadership. But before we leave that other thing, I was talking about the sense of hope, uh, the bringing energy in the room. I think the other thing that must happen is the leader should give a sense of purpose to the job. For example, I worked in one place where we were doing one of those team workshops and asked people to introduce themselves and a woman said, my name is Robin, I'm just the payroll clerk. Just. Just the payroll yeah, clerk. Just. And other people in the room said, hang on, if you didn't do that payroll, how would I pay my mortgage? How would I send my kids to school? How would I have my holiday? And the people in the room lifted her spirits up. Her boss told her, your job is to process payroll. And I've seen that time and time again. It's easy for a firefighter or an AMBO to see the payoff in their job, but they can't do that job without the people behind them in the support role. And I want to, I want to know, do those people also share the sense of purpose that the frontline people do? And that's what we need to look at. I, I try just on that, I, I try to articulate that to people who maybe are not on the front line. And one of the stories I tell is that when people join the organisation, I express how that they've joined a team when they're watching the news that night and they're watching a an SES crew doing a land search to say you know to try to find a young child or there it's been a house fire and there's a, you know, a crew there. I express that they're now part of that team, even though mm. they're not there with them. Their work contributes to that outcome, and it's interesting when you say it and you really can get that uh, point to them. You know, the eyes open up. Absolutely. That brings the energy to them. The other thing to also consider, because I hope that some of the people listening to you aren't just bosses and leaders and no, managers. No, I have a wide variety of listeners, actually. Because yeah. Yeah. one of the other things that's interesting to me is, what can I do as a worker 
to bring energy to my task. For example, I've often been, I'm, I'm retired now. I've had a long career. Sometimes I've found myself in a job that is not right for me. And I've, I don't feel happy. I'm not bringing energy to the work. I'm a survivor. I might even be a whinger or a prisoner. I might be stuck. Yeah. And a lot of people sit around waiting for someone else to rescue them. Yeah. And I believe if you're not in the right job, you're not happy, you should do something about that yourself yeah. to take responsibility for your destiny. If you're not able to bring good energy to the job, why are you in that job? Yeah, and this really connects to this very simple idea that we have one life. We have one life and we've got to stop creating redundancy cultures where people are going to sit there and wait to be paid to go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Actually, in this building one day, when we were talking to one of the support units and we we said, let's, we asked the people to come, let's have morning tea together. And one person said, I'm not here to talk with you over morning tea. I'm here to do a job. And they went back to their computer. Oh, what sort of energy is that person bringing to the workplace? Are they really happy here if they don't want to talk to their colleagues? Yeah, and this is this whole area is is very interesting to me. I I know that not everyone not everyone gets to have a good workplace experience, and you could almost take it a bit further and say, as humans, we don't always live on planet fair. Um, mm. You know, things happen to all of us in life where uh, we feel like we've been um, we haven't been treated justly, and I I actually get that, and I've I've lived it. It's happened to me. The the trick I think has been understanding that uh, I you know that life by its nature is not always fair, and and I wish I could design a world uh, a world full of people where it's uh, you know nirvana in the sense that uh, nothing ever goes wrong and all the rest. But that's not this world. The notion of people uh, understanding what's in their control and what's not in their control for me remains an incredibly powerful tool if they choose to use it. What's your take on that? Yeah. It's very important. It comes back a little bit more to that coaching and mentoring as well. Yeah. Like one of the things I've tried to do and I've failed miserably at is to get people in the workplace to sit together every now and then and just to talk about what's happening around here. What could we do better? How could we improve how we work together? I'm having trouble finding bosses who are prepared to spend 15 minutes once a month with each of their workers to say, how are you? What are we doing? What can we do better for you? Are you in the right job? And we're not having enough of that dialogue with each other about it because we've all been bruised by work and bruised by some of the people we work with. And you're right, life isn't fair. What are we going to do about that? And, and damn, Robert, you just, and you saying that and describing the 15 minutes or anything, I'm sitting there going, I don't do that. I do, I do it sporadically or ad hoc and there's a, probably a lesson there for me that I need to have a bit of a look at that to see whether I can bring a bit more structure because I know that I look at my, my at times I, I feel like I give more of my time to the people who don't deserve my time and less time to the people who probably do deserve it. Yes and if people want to look at something I don't know anyone has actually read all of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits Highly Effective People. I have I, I am a okay. sorry I, I am and I, I love it actually no there you know when he gets into his you know really complicated models yeah. you know about uh, in your score stuff and all the rest of, uh, because I, and I should disclose to the listeners you know Robert in his work as a HBDI practitioner was one of the first people who brought to me a greater level of awareness of who I am. And, and certainly Rob would probably, I'll let Rob respond about what his view is on me 
with that Covey book uh, not not being interested in certain part. Let's just explore this a bit. What why is that, Rob? For okay. me, well. Nobody should ever read a whole management book. <laughs> uh, one of the things I did in a previous job was teach people to speed read. Yeah, yeah. Read the headlines. Take out of a book what you need to take. No one writes a book, and they might. We all might all write books, and I've done it. And I think this is what everyone should know. But that's not true. People should find in a book or an idea what they need to help them at the particular time. I'm not a big fan of leadership and management training. You put everyone through a program with lots of ideas like a sheep dip and expect them to come out different. People should pick the eyes out of what they want and uh, take out of it what they need. And and certainly, I know you're thinking preferences. You're not going to be into fine detail. <laughs> but if I go back to Kobe, yeah. one of the things he was very good at with time management was to talk about big rocks. Yeah, the big rocks, yeah. Yeah, you get a bucket, yeah. fill it with sand, yeah. and then you can't put big rocks in it. But you put the big rocks in, and then you can fill it with sand. You can even shake the bucket and you fit more sand in. And for me, a, a boss should make sitting down with individuals on the team one-on-one -on -one should be a big rock once a month. Yeah. Sitting out with the whole team for a, a review of how we are working together should be a big rock. And that should be in the diary and nothing should shake it out of the diary except in a, a real emergency. And I don't, I think people get far too busy. Whether you, whatever role you have in an organization, we come in and let the day overwhelm us. We get too busy and we keep saying, I should be talking to that person. I should be paying attention to that matter, but we don't. And the other thing, I don't know who said it. I do know who said it. It's a man who wrote, uh, M. Scott Peck. He said, every team, every leader avoids the job they really have to do. Yeah. And yeah. that is to pay attention to relationships. Yeah. And that's the job we always put to one side. I'll get around to it. And we don't. And uh, I think if, if I knew a, a, a boss was interested in me, I'd have much more commitment to my workplace. It's uh, such an interesting concept about how much attention do you pay do you pay to your people, and I've probably been criticised, and now I'm too people centric, and it's probably a fair criticism. So I've had to work on getting the balance right for me, but but maybe I'm coming the other direction. Just to uh, the point that Rob made about the the big rocks, Covey was essentially saying, just for clarity's sake. That you need to have the you need to have the big important things identified in your life, in your career, in your personal life, before you get caught up in the minutia, which will take you away in an instant from what the important things are. Before we move into the final section, Robert, which is the five questions which I ask each guest, what would you say? And you probably touched on a few of these things already. And certainly our organisations, like every other organisation where we go go through cycles, ups and downs and moments of clarity, moments of vision clarity, then moments where we're you know, flux or potential change. You've already covered your points around your views on, on what the bosses or the leaders uh, should be doing. What Anything else you want to say more broadly about that environment and what people, whether whether they're in a leadership role or whether they're a team member, are what things they can do right now to, to make their world uh, in their work better or make their existence better in the sense that when they get out of bed, that the first thought that they're going through is, oh, goodness, I've got to go to work. <laughs> what, what would you say? Yeah. Look, we have to 
bring back our sense of purpose to the job and get that bigger picture picture right. I don't think I have a very uh, strong answer for you, except that people should have a sense of purpose and they should also look at not just the task, but how we relate to each other. Rabbi Kushner, the man who wrote that when bad things happen to good people, said there are only two things we can do in this world, achieve and connect. And I think when we wake up in the morning, we should be looking at how do we connect with the people at work? How do we connect to the people in our family, our lives, the people important to us? And how do we connect with our inner self as well? Because too often we lose that person as well. And if we can reconnect with our own selves, we've got more, something better to bring to the workplace. And then we can look, then we can start on what we, do we need to achieve today, this week, this year. Yeah. yeah. And I think we've got to start with that, the sense of connecting. I would say that you know, Victor E. Frankel, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, he certainly hones in, on those aspects, maybe from a little bit different angle, but as with purpose or meaning, being central to a person's life. So if you can derive meaning from the action you take with your family or with your work, then all of a sudden energy becomes more free-flowing. It would be the way I would describe his views. Yeah, well, but I don't know if you're like me, but often I would go to bed thinking about work the next day. Oh, I still do. Yeah. And that's a dreadful yeah, it's, way it's of going good. to bed. Yeah. And then you wake up thinking about it as well. Another person I know once said to me, she wakes up in the morning and says, who do I love? Who loves me? Yeah. And that starts at, and what can I look forward to today? Yeah. Uh, even though things are bad, there's something you can look forward to today, even if it's a cup of coffee. Yeah. And, that's a, and starting the day of those questions is a better way than starting with, well, what do I have to do today? Where's my briefcase? What's my first meeting going to be? Yeah. And generally, pe- generally, people around you, when you're in that mode or in that situation, you know, they're, they're going to be probably duckling and diving, you know, because you, you're not going to be your best. You, you're going to be looking for people to take out your frustration on, uh, whether it be family or, or workmates. Mm. And I say that as having done it. So, yeah, lots of lots of lessons. Now, we're going to move into the final phase, Robert. And these five questions, as I say to everyone, are not intended to be uh, long answers, but we may end up talking a little bit into them. Uh, and whatever comes into your mind, I think, is the, the most important thing I can, I can say to you. So the first question is, what do you wish you really understood? There's a couple of ways to think about that. Let's go back to what do I wish I really understood back in the beginning? And you know the stories about me. I was not a good manager. I was a dreadful manager of people. I wish I'd understood that management required knowing when to do, tell people what to do. I'm an avoider of being direct with people. Manage, I'm very good at delegating, getting rid of tasks. I should have understood management is also about coaching and supporting and being hands-on with people. I wish I'd been a better boss. I learned all my lessons about management by making mistakes. And oh, if oh. I had a coach or a mentor, yeah. and actually friends used to tell me stuff about my management style, <laughs> oh, and that helped, that helped me. Being able to accept feedback was very important. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting reflecting on conversations we have with ourselves as we get older, because mm. it, that conversation changes. The second question is, what do you wish that other people understood about you? I'm pretty lucky when I worked in emergency services in that I think people don't understand my role pretty well. 
lots of times I've gone to other places and people introduce me, oh, here's Robert Webber, he's here to motivate us. That's not me. I'm not a trainer. I'm not a guru. Yeah. I believe my job in the room is to be a facilitator. And what I want people to understand always is I'm the least important person in the room. The most important people in the room are the people that know the organisation. They know the past. They know what needs to be done. They know their job. But what they mightn't know is some tools and some processes. That's what I bring to the yeah. bring to them. And you've done it so well. I've been on the receiving end of gaining those uh, benefits. The next question, you, you kind of touch on this in, in answering question one, but I'll read it out. And if you've got anything you want to add to it, please do. In respect to your own leadership development or development as a person and knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself? Have hope. Hope is not always the best way of managing an organisation, but well, I do apparently like... Apparently, hope's not a method. Hope is not a method, <laughs> and we do know why we say that book, and that was a very, very important, important book. Yeah. But what was important is to believe in what you want to do. For example, when I stopped working for TAFE, left the bank, and became a consultant, I would do any job that came my way to earn a bit of money. And I did the wrong sort of jobs for me. The best, best thing is to know what your skills are, don't focus on your weaknesses, build on those skills and go in the right direction for your for you, your soul and your well being. I love the fact that you use the word soul there, because that, you know, we, we could dig into that as being so important. The fourth question is if you had a magic wand, what's an ability you would give current leaders in our sector, or maybe you can broaden this out in society right now? Magic wand. Magic wand is I really want them to have the big picture. We're facing, this sounds like I'm kicking the current bucket, but we're facing a climate crisis. And I believe people should be picking that up in their job. Just look what's happened around Queensland and New South Wales in the last couple of weeks. It's been tough, very tough. It's been really tough. Mm. We can go back to 1983 when I fled with my child from Ash Wednesday. That wasn't part of a big picture. That was just what happened occasionally in Victoria. We really have to be building something for our future of our children with how we're responding to the world at the moment. And I'd like to believe that we're all going to pick up that agenda and work for it. Thank you. The fifth and final question is, and I know you've acknowledged that you know, you're retired, but I know you're still an active thinker. Mm. I know you spend, I reckon you still spend a lot of time contemplating what could be done different, better, and reflecting on your own life. The question is, what's a legacy you wish to be remembered for as someone who's been there to help individuals and teams over such a long time? What's your legacy? I would like to make sure that I leave people with some more tools in the toolbox. You've heard the saying, if you only have a hammer in your toolkit, every problem's a nail. I want to make sure people have more tools in their toolkit. And that's what I'd like the legacy to believe. And probably I need to come back and revisit that because no one, apart from yourself, Andrew, hardly anyone reads management books. But I need to find a way of sharing those tools that we've developed over the time so they don't get lost. Well, maybe we might have opportunities in the, in the future on how we might do that. The important thing for me, just in your reference to uh, management books, I disclose that I read more leadership style books now as opposed to management. And, and even when I read those books, I was probably that person you described as you know, focusing on the parts that you think have relevance to you. you know, having said that, I, I knew that there were things where I had such a weakness in terms of a capability. I didn't need to make it a strength because I, I do believe that 
time spent on making a, um, a strength even stronger is will return more mm. than working on a big weakness. Uh, and what I've learned is I, I put people around me who are good at that stuff and can protect my hiney from errors coming from my lack of attention, to, to use that as an example. But I'm always encouraging people to seek knowledge. In this era, it's not just a book anymore. It's a podcast, it a, a, could be a documentary, could be a, a bibliography, I don't know. There's so much information out there. Yeah, once upon a time I wrote something called Four Pages for an Organisation. I read the management book so they didn't have to. Yeah. And what I did was in the four pages, I said, this book talks about this, on these pages, you want to go read the pages. So I gave them the, the kernels of the ideas. And there are some things we've done in the past where we've got ideas, we've got to find a way of sharing them with people, like your podcast. That means they don't have to wade through all those, all those pages, all those books, because not everyone is a reader. A lot of fireys, for example, are doers. Yeah. And, uh, and some of them take pride in not being thinkers. Yeah. But we've got to find ways of engaging them with ideas to show them that this will help them do their job. Yeah, and that's a, a very personal journey for, for everyone. How many books did you write over your time? Oh, I, look, I've written a couple for specifically for organisation, yeah. for one particular organisation about to help them manage. This was a stockbroking company. Virtually a waste of time writing books for stockbrokers <laughs> for ideas. Because uh, they're focused. Yeah. But, but tell me about your main book. Oh, the main book was 20 odd years ago called Roses and Rust. It's about if you look after people in the organisation, treat the organisation like a garden, you'll create roses. If you treat it like a, the organisation like a machine, you'll create rust. And too many of the practices we, we put into organisations, I hate scientific management. I hate performance management uh, reviews. I hate 360 degree feedback. Because all these people are using tools and techniques to avoid managing people directly. Yeah. And they, put, they apply the technologies from building machines to trying to build people and build organisations. And we've got to jettison a lot of that and get back to having real face-to-face -face dialogue with people which is what the book Roses and Rust was about. Talk with your people, look after them, engage with them, give them hope and say thank you. What a wonderful way to wrap up. You've just, I think you've just summarised our time together today. Rob, thank you for, for your service to community you know, right back in the beginning with CFA. And certainly thank you again for how you've helped organisations that I've been involved in to try to find our way through periods which were pretty complex pretty scary for people, but I can affirm that every time you were part of it, that the lights shone on the path just a little bit brighter, and that was really valued. So um, thank you for today, and uh, I hope that we continue to talk. I still probably consider you as a mentor, even though there's been <laughs> a, a long period with us interacting, but as people know who listen to this podcast, if you haven't got a mentor there and you, and you want to be serious about the game you're in, then you're not probably being serious. And on that point, thank you, sir. Thank you, Andrew.